I used to want to make a lot more money, so I would invest big. I would take risks. Everybody thinks entrepreneurs take risks. And as you guys know, you have an idea and maybe it's a risky idea, but then your job, 99% of your job after that is to reduce risk. And so I didn't know that then, whether it was being an entrepreneur or an investor or any activity, that my job was at some point goes from taking risk to reducing risk. And so with investing, it's not so much trying to make a lot of money. There's good investments out there. The key is reducing risk so you don't lose money. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Mouthguard, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk to my buddy, James Altucher, of what has this guy not done in his career? Uh, he's been a best-selling author. He's sold multiple companies. He's made millions, lost it many, many times, and is just a really fascinating guy. This is definitely going to be a fun holiday episode for you sexy people out there. You can also check out James on the James Altucher podcast. In this conversation with him, you're going to learn at least three fun things. Number one, his parenting techniques. A little bit surprising. Number two, how he got millions, lost it, and now got it back. Number three, other quirky stories like his wife walking out on him and then meeting the love of his life before he went to a monastery. It was a fun episode. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you go to AppSumo.com. You're already subscribed, but if you're not, AppSumo is the number one site online for software deals. So if you are trying to start or grow your online business, AppSumo.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Lorraine Harper from the good old US of A. She left a review saying, I am a few years away from retirement. Listening to the show makes me want to quit my job and start my own business. So much great content. Thanks for the kind words, Lorraine. It's never too late. Uh, and if you want to shout out any future episode, I leave a review anywhere you listen to this podcast. I check every single one of them. The Jews are either in New York or Florida or L.A. That's true. Or Austin. Austin is your new Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, that's what they say. Once you go to Austin, you never go to Fort Lauderdale again. <laughs> that is what they say. I've, I just heard that this morning. I don't know why. It's like my, my kids were saying it for some reason. We have like an hour-ish. Why don't we like fix your business? I'm going to be your business whisperer. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. I mean, honestly, I'd rather come play ping pong and chess with you. We could talk chess, ping pong. It's hard to talk ping pong. You know, I started taking lessons and it was interesting because I've, like you probably, like every Jew, we grew up with a ping pong table in our basement and would play our dad and our friends or whatever. And then I started taking lessons from one of the best players in the country and every thing I had been doing for the prior 40 years was wrong. Like it's just every habit I had was bad. And so it was almost impossible to unlearn the bad habits and get good. Like I can, in a lesson, I could do it okay. But then when I play a game, I'm just a mess again. I took ping pong lessons a while ago. I was playing like 12 year olds and it was weird because he would beat me and then his mom would pick him up. That's painful. Yeah. I think was, uh, he had an Indian in like Arvin or something. And I was like, he was a cool dude though, but it, I couldn't really hang out with him after school because I'd be like way creepy. That's the great thing about games when you're young is that it learns, you learn a language that where you can speak that language as well as any adult or better. Learning games is a great way. It's a great equalizer for young people to then interact with all sorts of different people, adults, young people people from different countries and so on. Like when you're really good at something, you can go to pop down in any city and join the subculture of that interest, even if you don't speak the native language. Well, two questions I was thinking specifically with you with that, I guess, how are your kids getting raised differently than you were raised? Like, do they play a lot of games? Did you play games? Were they like spanked? You're not spanked. Do you like still getting spanked? <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, it's almost like none of the above. So my kids are not really into games as much as I was. I was always into every game as a kid. Like name any sort of classic game. And I had a period where I was obsessed with it. They're not into that at all. But they're creative in different ways. I've worked since I was 13 or 14 years old. And I paid for my education. I've worked all through college. I worked, I've just been working ever since. And my kids, I treat a little better than that. Not better or worse, but I don't want them to, you know, you have this natural instinct as a parent, you don't want them to worry. And that has short term gains could lead to long term losses for them in the sense that I don't spoil them and they're on a budget and I give them an allowance. But, you know, it's a little easier for them than it was for me. You know, and I've been had money and I've been poor, but I've always buffered them from all of that. And for them, it was a very even childhood. They never saw me stressed. How much is their allowance? My one kid who does go to college gets $500 a month. And my other kid who dropped out of college, much to my happiness, she gets rent, but has to work. Yeah, I think one thing I've been like thinking about lately, I was talking with friends, is like, what do we deserve? And a lot of that, I think, is from our upbringing in terms of how did our parents treat us? How did like my parents' house was very strict and very clean and very orderly. And I think that that leads me to kind of be like, well, I don't know if I just, I don't, maybe it's a Jewish thing too. Like we don't deserve nice houses sometimes, or I don't know, just kind of a topic I've been kind of like noodling on and trying to, to figure out. There's three or four points of wealth that make your life different. So there's that moment where you go from living off your parents to actually making enough money to be free, to have your own money to buy stuff. And then there's that point when you're making a salary and it's big enough, you could go out and buy a pricey meal or, I don't know, an iPhone and it won't kill you. It won't destroy you. That was like real freedom for me. when I, The first time I, I was able to buy a VCR, which for those who don't know, is a video cassette recorder. You could play VHS tapes on it and watch movies. And that felt wealthy to me to be able to buy that without thinking about it. And then the next point of wealth is like, essentially more than a million dollars because there's this like myth in our heads. Oh, you're a millionaire. Unfortunately, I hit that point and then lost that point several times over. So I'd get that ecstatic high and then this extremely depressing low and go back and forth repeatedly. And then there's the next point where you realize, oh, okay, now I'm, I'm doing fine. You know, because there's three skills to money, making it, keeping it, growing it. And people who make it are fooled into thinking they can keep it and grow it, not realizing those are mutually exclusive skills. And it's very easy to lose it once you've made it. And it's very easy to not grow it once you make it because you get nervous then about growing it because you take too many risks or the wrong kinds of risks that you took to make it. And so it took me a while to realize that those were three different skills. I wish I had had somebody tell me the first time I made money, just a simple sentence, which is put it, all the money in a checking account and do not touch it for two years. Let it marinate your soul a little bit before you touch it. That's what I should have done. Honestly, I think just millionaire sounds cool, but like, Mitchell, we should try to make popularize like hundredaire or thousandaire. Yeah, like uh, before I sold my first successful business, I had never had more than like $1,000 in my bank account in my entire life. I'd never had any money. I came into New York City dirt poor and had to survive and then started this business that I got was getting paid cash for from clients and built it up and finally sold it during the internet boom. 
then lost every dime. So I thought I was just lucky and this internet thing. And that was it. I won the lottery and you can't win the lottery twice. And then that happened to me two times over again. And each time I thought I was like, oh man, I'm smart. I can make it. And if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And then I turned out to be the most stupid person on the planet. Much the feeling I often get when I'm playing chess, actually. I think sometimes what I've been fascinated with is the skills that help you create the millions is also the skills of why you lose the millions. No, actually, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. Okay, good. Tell me. Well, my theory right now is there's no such skill as business. There's no such skill as entrepreneurship. There's sales. There's negotiation. There's being creative. There's execution. There's management. There's leadership. There's marketing. And all these things are kind of exclusive from the other. So if you're good at sales, you might not be good at execution. If you're good at coming up with an idea, you might not be good at motivating people. Then there's the skill of not only sales, but selling the business, selling the vision. That's a totally separate skill from selling to a customer or negotiating with a vendor. So I had no business skills at all. I had very little in leadership skills, but I had good execution skills and good sales skills. But then when I sold the business, I mistakenly thought, I had good business skills, not realizing that business is not a skill. It's a collection of micro skills. That means I can invest. I could tell other people what to do and they'll take my advice. And because I'm very convincing and because I have a good sales technique, people are always like, oh man, I should listen to this guy. And so I just kept shoveling shit and getting everybody to jump into it. You know, I'd invest and I'd lose it all and I'd invest more and I'd lose it all. So, one, I totally agree with you. And I think sometimes. I think about the aliens coming and it's like, all right, what skill do you have on this earth, Noah? And I'm like, aliens, I could sell whatever products you have, or I could do your marketing. And they're like, worthless, die. And then like all the smart people are like engineers and the artists and the musicians. And so I think I do agree with you. I'd say a lot of business is common sense. One thing I'm trying to get a feeling for, why are Jewish people, why are we so neurotic? Like that's our, one of our superpowers. We're like, I don't know. I think so. I do. It's like, how did our culture get that? I think because we're afraid. Like our generation, you wouldn't know it, but like my parents, my dad didn't speak English till he was like six years old. He grew up in New York City and was born there, but he spoke Yiddish as his first language. And he grew up in a ghetto and people were pulling out guns and beating him up and whatever. And his parents were serfs on farms or servants in a house. And, you know, there were pogroms happening and Hitler happening. And, you know, just two generations away, there was a lot of like fear. And people sometimes say, oh, that stays in the DNA. No, but it stays in the way that they look at life and the way that they raise you. And so you inherit a little bit of that from them, both nature and nurture. Like my grandmother might have to eat shit off the floor, literally, if she drops something what's serving in some big house. I don't have to do that, but there's something in me that's like nervous about that somehow because I, I learned from her. She could never, for instance, eat in the same room as me because she got had this PTSD from that that she had to go in the other room and eat by herself from because she couldn't eat with anybody in the room because it might get slapped out of her face or whatever. And so you get that a little bit when you're growing up. I'm not like worried I'm going to have to eat shit off the floor, but there's some amorphous thing I'm scared about. I'm not going to be able to protect myself and my family. It's going to be out of my control somehow. So you try to get money to get it in your control, but money doesn't actually do that. So you feel like you need more and more and more to fill this hole 
that you inherit in some psychological way from just two generations ago or one generation ago. Oh, I need more. I'm, I'm not going to be able to protect my kids from being slapped around in some part of my brain. I'm thinking that. And so you think, oh, well, 10 million is not enough. 15 million is not enough. I need 100 million to really protect my family, which is a mentally ill thought. Like that's a mentally ill thought. But you to go from 10 million to 100 million, you have to take big risks. You have to invest 2 million in a business, 3 million in another business, and so on. And of course, that's the fastest way to lose money if you have no investing skills. It's interesting. I'm sure Mitchell who's on the call as well. Like my mom, she's always like, lock the door, lock the door. I'm like, mom, there's nothing to steal here. Or like we were at the cemetery. She's like, did you lock the door? I'm like, everyone's dead. Everyone's dead at the cemetery. There's no one here to, to rob you anymore. How are your kids turning out? We talked about they get a little bit of a salary. Are they like kind of like Jazaini like you or how are they turning out? It's like they took different pieces of me and divided it up between them. So like one of my daughters is super anxious and she all the time thinks like the worst case scenario can happen. The things that are high stakes for her, she assumes the worst case will happen if she's, unless she's like enormously prepared. She's the perfect person where you would say perfection is the enemy of progress. Stop trying to be perfect. And I tell her, Every time you're this anxious about something where you're absolutely sure the worst case will happen, just write it down so we can check later if it happens. And we do write it down. I think we forget to check later, but I think over time, I'm hoping that activity has helped her. Another thing I tell her, she wakes up in the middle of the night, like I do, or like I've done, and she comes and wakes me up. This is a few years ago when we were, she was still a little younger, and she would wake me up and she's like, I can't sleep. And I would say, okay, what are you thinking about? She's like, all these thoughts are in my head. And I said, okay, here's what you do. It's three in the morning. You do this all the time at three in the morning. How about we make an appointment that everything you're thinking right now, we're going to talk about at three in the afternoon. So this way you can get some sleep and you'll have total confidence that I will talk about every issue with you at three in the afternoon. They're all valid issues, I'm sure. But let's make an appointment to talk then. Don't even think about it until then because I'll take care of it. But then at three in the afternoon, she's not worried anymore. There's nothing to talk about. Because that's what I tell myself when I wake up at three in the morning. Okay, I'm used to doing this. I'm not going to solve anything now. I'll make an appointment with myself. Three in the afternoon, I'm going to talk about these things I'm worried about. I'm going to think about them. And by three in the afternoon, I'm not worried about those things anymore. Right now, I have two biological daughters and uh, three kids from my marriage. And they're all ages 18 to 21. So I have four daughters and a son two daughters and a son from the marriage and two daughters from me. And now all five are between ages of 18 to 21. And every one kid has their own set of issues. It's like kids wake up and they get dealt a hand, like a poker hand, and that's their issues for the day. And then everything they do corresponds to those issues. And then in the morning, the next day, you're still thinking about what their issues were the day before. And they're like, oh no, I'm not worried. Well, I was never worried about that but they have a new hand that they were dealt overnight and you have to figure out what their new issues are. <laughs> I mean, you basically have like modern millennial social media living with you and around you, like TikTok. You have all of it 24-7, it sounds like. Oh yeah, like I get just naturally absorbed, like where are kids selling clothes? Like what's the latest trend for where you buy the clothes and then where you flip them? What's happening? Is it Instagram? Is it Snapchat? Is it TikTok? Like I see everything that they're doing. Dad, you're so old, you do podcasts? That's for old people. So here's an interesting strategy. I've been wanting my kids to listen to my podcast. Like, oh, this podcast with Noah Kagan. You better listen to this because this is going to inform you about how to make money and be successful. So what I do is with one of them now, and I'm going to try this with more, with one of them, 
I assign them the task. I'll give them like an, I, I won't say listen to this podcast and tell me what you learned. Like then they'll never listen. But if I say, listen, this one podcast was double the popularity of the other ones. And I want to know why. So I can't figure out why. So listen to this podcast. And I need you to give me 10 reasons why you think this podcast might've been more popular than the average podcast. And then they actually work really hard at it. Cause I'll offer to pay like 50 bucks or whatever. And then, you know, whoever I'm giving that lesson to, that task to, will really come up with insightful stuff. So that's how I get them to listen to the podcast. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah, it's a little deflective. If you just say, read this, they're not going to read it. (laughs) That's my technique. By the way, Mitchell Cohen, I'm putting that in quotes, Cohen, he is totally not a Jew. You better check your DNA, Mitchell, because it's a blonde-haired, (laughs) blue-eyed, looks like he goes to the gym pretty regularly. He's got like that rectangular... I used to be in the Air Force kind of look. <laughs> you need a 23andMe test. About 3% of people on 23andMe discover that their father is not their real father. So you need to check that out, Mitchell. That was hella good. It's like a Dolph Lundgren's his dad. <laughs> oh, it reminds me. One time I was in California and I visited Ty Lopez because I had never met him. And this was when his YouTube video was going really big. And I was just curious, like what? what's going on in the house? Is the garage like it's got, does he have his books in the garage? So I go over there and just hang out for a little bit. And then he asked me like, Hey man, you want to meet Dolph Lundgren? Dolph Lundgren's coming over. And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm good. And then I didn't meet Dolph Lundgren. How do you not want to meet Dolph Lundgren? I don't know why I didn't want to. I just wanted to get out of the house. I just, I felt uncomfortable. What made you uncomfortable there? Nothing really. It's just, you get like just an instinct. I'm not having fun. I was with my girlfriend at the time and we just decided, ah, let's just go to dinner by ourselves. We don't need to do the Dolph Lundgren thing. Or maybe I was secretly worried Dolph Lundgren was going to hit on my girlfriend. Who know? Who knows? Like, I don't know. That could be it too. Mitchell, call your dad. Ask him. Mitchell, wouldn't it be weird like if you signed up for 23andMe and like all it shows you are Dolph Lundgren's relatives? <laughs> like that would be that would be insane. Like what the hell is going on here? And they're all in Sweden. Like on the one hand, you've got like a savings book in a savings deposit box with like $1,930 from your bar mitzvah. And then on the other hand, you've got the Rocky Three Trust Fund that is just waiting for you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm preparing for a stand-up tonight, so I'm a little out of control. No, honestly, this is good. What's been another time where you met someone or you're like, oh my God, my I loved, you know, like you went to the person's house or you met the person, you're like, yo, this person was great. Like the opposite of your that experience. Uh, mo- most of the time, I meet people out of both curiosity and genuine interest in being friends with them. But in this one case, it was just pure curiosity. Dude, he's got the 23 in me. Did you already take it, Mitchell? You need to do an unboxing video when you open that 23 in me and whatever you spit in it and send it off to Dolphco or whatever. Anyway, Mitchell, let the Jews talk over here, all right? <laughs> <laughs> James, I was trying to think like, you know, it's funny because like when you think of Jews, like everyone's like, oh yeah, rich Jews. But like, who's a rich non-Jew that everyone's like, yeah, that guy or that girl. Richard Branson. You know what Jews, though? We like to take credit for it, though. We're like, oh, he's got a Jewish CFO, though. Yeah, right. His CFO or his mentor was like Moisha in the ghetto of London, always stayed with his roots. <laughs> but Richard Branson would go over there like once a week and have like, I don't know, Kasha Varnishkas with him. And uh, Moisha would give him his wisdom. You know, Richard, take every dollar and split it in half, put it in the bank. <laughs> Did you grow up very Jewish? Were you Jewy? Were you guys like Jewy growing up? No, no. Were you bar mitzvahed? No, I never. I had a Las Vegas one when I was twenty-five. 
Oh, that's good. That that's very Noah ish. That's Noah style. Like, let's do this anyway and completely in a new way. No, I didn't have anything. My parents were when they were young, they were their parents were Marxists, so they don't believe in religion. So I didn't grow up with any any religion at all. All right. A few things I was curious about. So I just lost in chess and then someone called me and I was about to talk to you. And it made me wonder, like, what was the last time you were really angry? I wrote an article recently which got somewhat viral and a lot of people liked it. But of course, whenever you write, and you guys know this, whenever you write something that some people like and some people hate, you only hear from the people who hate. Because the people who like it, just they're normal people and they they read it and they learn and they like it and they go on with their lives. Like then there's the next day for them and they never think about it again. But people who hate what you do, they will never let you alone. They will never let you forget that you've ruined their life somehow with something you wrote. So I wrote something that went particularly viral, which means people are going to like it more on one side and people are going to hate it more on the other side. So I started getting everything from, you know, death threats to being harassed. And even, you know, an ex-girlfriend or a family member would write articles trashing me. And I couldn't understand why they would like trash me with, things that were just abject lies, like total lies, because they, were, they couldn't think of any other way to trash me. And they couldn't address the actual issues in my article. So they just trashed me somehow. And as you also know, as content creators, the worst thing you could do is respond to someone who is irrationally trashing you. You cannot do that. And they kept tagging me in their posts. And they kept tagging like Andrew Cuomo and Jerry Seinfeld, and they wanted people to notice them and no one was noticing them, but then they really wanted me to notice them. As far as they're concerned, I've never read their articles. I never commented on it. I wasn't aware of it. But then I saw the people who were liking, hitting like on their articles. And I'm like, really? You worked for me five years ago. I treated you so well. And now you're going to like this article with all you know is all lies. And so that started to bother me. But it wasn't like anger. It was more like really, I got a little sad about that rather than angry. How do you deal with uh, sadness or regret? I don't have regret because I had enough of that when I lost all my money and I regretted for maybe 10 years every single day, all day long. And now, I don't know, I built a wall for that or something. I simply do not regret. But something like that, I'm usually pretty good where I figure, okay, in 24 hours, the troll, whether I know them or not, is going to disappear and I'll be able to move on without thinking about it. This one, it went more viral than most, this one article, and it got you know, an angry reaction from people who I knew and loved. It really hurt me. And then I had another intense project I was working on where, completely unrelated, but I had to interview in one week 13 African-American leaders about their experiences in America and with race. And some of the stories were really intense. So this was how I was getting these intense stories that I couldn't really emotionally react to as part of this, what this project was about. And at the same time, I was getting like, you know, these ex-girlfriends, family members, ex-employees, other things. And then Jerry Seinfeld, like this hero of mine, just everybody kind of trashing me simultaneously while I was hearing all these intense stories in this other project. And I think that it's like one of the few times in the past few years that I got a little sad and there wasn't really a way to deal with it. I just kind of waited it out and, you know, experienced it and wrote about it a little bit. And then I got worried I was writing about it too much. And then I just had to wait it out. And I would say by now, it's largely over. That's kind of got to be wild. 
I'm imagining like Santa. I mean, I don't believe in Santa, but like I'm imagining like someone I idolize, like let's say Jeff Bezos. He like tweets like, hey, I really hate Noah Kagan. I think that, yeah, that'd probably hurt. Imagine if he tweeted that and let's say he gave a bunch of reasons and you're thinking to yourself, those reasons aren't true. I didn't go bowling with him and then cheat on the score. Did he say that? <laughs> no, no. But he said like other things that were just ridiculous. And then he said it again on 60 Minutes. Like first he said it in the New York Times and then he said it again on 60 Minutes. All this crap. But then imagine that happens and then everyone else starts saying, oh yeah, Jeff, I knew Noah 30 years ago. All the time he was talking about Ronald Reagan. Like he had Ronald Reagan statues in his house. And what a he's an asshole, right? and trying to get Jeff Bezos to like them and saying all these li- more and more lies about you to escalate, to try to get Jeff Bezos to acknowledge them. So that was like the equivalent of what was happening. But like times, let's say a thousand, you know, in terms of the number of people trying to piggyback on Seinfeld. Hans, so what I really want to know is why do you cheat when you go bowling? <laughs> no, I don't go. Bowling was in my head because I just, someone was just talking to me about this book, Bowling Alone, about how as a society, we're getting more and more lonely, like we don't meet each other anymore. We have Zoom calls and, you know, because of the nature of things. But in general, part of the gift of social media is that we do things more disconnected, which is both good and bad. I was just talking about this book, Bowling Alone with someone about an hour ago. Can you actually add up the score in bowling? I still like, after so many years of bowling, I can never figure out the score. I'm like the strike, but that's a plus 10, minus four, if it's a spare. I think I can do it. When I first got divorced and I was trying to figure out how to what to do with my kids on the weekends, it was always the first thing is bowling. So I went bowling quite a bit with my kids and I would have to add up all their scores. They were sore losers. They were like little bitches just crying all the time. And uh, I would have to add up all their scores and maybe add some numbers. I would cheat for them like so that like the younger one wouldn't lose too badly to the older one because then she would cry more on the way home and not want to eat lunch or anything. She's probably still a sore loser. I think it's a good thing to be a sore loser. I'm not a great winner but I'm a really bad loser. I started playing chess when I was almost 17. So I started playing tournament chess when I was 17 years old. And I got pretty good relatively quickly. And I remember one time I lost a game. I was My high school team was playing another high school team and I lost and I didn't expect to lose. So I just like threw all the pieces on the board and walked out and didn't go to school for the rest of that week. <laughs> like that's the kind of sore loser I was then. And so I'm over that phase of my life. But now you just do bigger sore losing. I kind of roll with the punches pretty well. Like, I think that's what I've learned over the past 10 years dealing with having losing money so much that the only way you're going to get it back is if you quickly reset your health in various ways, like your physical health, your emotional health, your creative health, your ability to not have anxiety, your ability to not regret. So you have to reset that as quickly as possible in order to have any chance at all of coming back from you know, basically just being on the floor with nothing. So I think I've learned to just over and over again, it's like a discipline because we all have ups and downs. And so, and like you've had ups and downs and you kind of learn to roll with it over time so that it doesn't affect you as much. But this is literally when I was like 42, I started to learn this. Before then I was filled with regret all the time and a sore loser about it. Well, I just realized something though. Like, do you have millions right now? Are you back up in the millions? Yeah, I'm doing well right now. Okay, could you want to just give it to me? Because you're going to lose it again. I just, I know your pattern. You give it to me. I'll just hold it. Well, that's probably a good idea. I probably should have done that with you in 1998 when I first made money. But like I said, there's skills, which is keeping it and growing it. And I think 
I've got keeping it down and I'm doing not so bad on growing it. So I'm a little better. But then, you know, you say something like that, then people say, oh, well, you know, screw him then. He's like rich or he, this guy reeks of affluent privilege. I've been like broke all my life. And then the first four times I made money, any money at all, I went completely dead broke even worse because then I would be in debt. And so it's been hard. I'm 52 years old now and it's been a hard 52. I mean, not totally hard. I have a lot of advantages as well, but. Two quick questions I want to hear more about. And then let's go into your, the business stuff you're doing now that you had, how you made your millions. One, I don't remember her name, but your last wife, she just like walked out on me one day. Yeah. What happened since then, dude? Like, I haven't really caught up to you as much, but like she walks, you told me like, I said hi to you. I think we were playing ping pong. And you're like, yeah, my wife just uh, walked out. And I haven't heard from her since. Yeah. I mean, she had, um, I don't know how to describe. I don't want to ever say anything that is bad for her. Let's just say she had a medical issue of sorts that, you know, affected her decisions for a little while. And, you know, one day she said, I'll be, I'm going out for an hour running some errands. And then I literally have never seen her since. And then I don't know, all sorts of things happened after that. But then I've been married for two years. I'm really happy. I've met this woman. And she, like I said, she has three kids. I have two. And it's been great. I mean, for the first time in my life, I think I found someone I actually felt in tune with, like on the same wavelength. And it's been, uh, I think before I was always, and I don't know how you do with relationships. I was thinking I was, if a girl liked me before, then I would like her back. That was really my only condition for liking somebody. And then it was like, right when I said to myself, you know what, screw this. It's not a good strategy. I'm going to go be in a monastery for the next year. Like, I don't care. I'm just not going to do this. Like literally that day I met Robin, who's who I'm now. And then eight weeks later, we got married because I'm still insane about the whole thing. But two years later, I'm still happy. Han, you went from meeting to marriage in eight weeks? Yeah. We knew each other beforehand. But but yeah, we started dating on like uh, around October 25th of 2018. And we got married December 31st, 2018. What's it like to marry and date you? I don't know. Robin, are you around? I don't know what it's like. It's probably... I have been writing every day since 1990. The main reason I wrote, I mean, I loved writing and I loved reading and I loved all that, but I really wanted someone to read something I wrote and fall in love with me that way. And that's what happened in this time. Like she read my book before she met me and she sought me out to meet me. And then we got to know each other as friends. And then we went on an actual date and that was that. I can't even imagine what kind of date you'd take a woman on. Ping pong. That's what you took your date on? A lot of first dates are on ping pong. I like to have fun. I like to play games. This date, though, was, was more in a restaurant. But most first dates I've done have been in ping pong. That's interesting. I guess I'm just curious what kind of woman works well with you and like what the experience is for them. I was thinking about that for my previous woman. I was like, wow, sometimes that could be pretty fun and sometimes it could be pretty uh, tiring. Yeah, like let me ask you a question. What if you're like obsessed one night playing chess and you lose like 12 games in a row to people who you know you should beat? even online, like, oh, they're rated such, like, I know I should be, something's wrong with my brain today. That would be pretty frustrating for a girl, like a girl who's sitting next to you is like, what is he talking about? Like, why would he care? It's just a game. No, you don't understand. My brain is malfunctioning. <laughs> the worst thing with me is if I have sort of a writer's block or if I've just bit off more than I can chew on business or after stand-up comedy, if, no, if I got heckled, I don't get heckled really anymore, but if I bomb in some way, then that could be a pretty frustrating experience. Because not that I'm upset at myself, is that I want to know what happened. Like I'm trying to analyze. Everybody will say, no, you did great. Don't worry, it was the audience. And I'm like, no, it's never the audience. 
it's always me. I am the one on the stage. So what did I do? And they'll say, no, no, sometimes you just can't serve barbecue to an audience that wants sushi. And I'm like, yeah, I can. That's my job. So I'm like analyzing by like degrading everything she's saying as potential criticism. All right. One last thing I never talk about your business stuff. Like losing a million. So like when I lost my Facebook money, I didn't actually lose it because I never had it. I didn't have it. And then I like lost it. You've had the millions. Like they were in the account. Yeah, they were in a checking account. Like I don't even use my savings account. <laughs> I was trying to think of a funny bank name. You bank it like Chuck E. Cheese. Like where do you do your banking at? JP Morgan Chase. I was like top shelf banking. The IRS and James Aldrich keep their money there. Because I've heard you talk about this on other shows and it's like your story. Like where did it go? Like exactly. Maybe like, what are you doing now with your money? What are probably all the investments you're doing now so we can avoid them? <laughs> no, but that's just it. Is that oh, here's what's changed is not so much where I invest, but how I invest. So I used to want to make a lot more money. So I would invest big. I would take risks. Everybody thinks entrepreneurs take risks. And as you guys know, you have an idea and maybe it's a risky idea, but then your job, 99% of your job after that is to reduce risk. And so I didn't know that then, whether it was being an entrepreneur or an investor or any activity, that my job was at some point goes from taking risk to reducing risk. And so with investing, it's not so much trying to make a lot of money. There's good investments out there. The key is reducing risk so you don't lose money. Part of that is instead of putting 20% of your net worth in a surefire thing, everybody says it's surefire. Like, look who's investing. They always invest in surefire things. I would invest like 20 or 30% of my net worth, which is insane, or more than that, which is insane. Like, that's how you lose all your money. You can't spend your way to losing money unless you start buying jets or expensive artwork or whatever. But even then, you could probably sell the jets, sell the artwork, but you can't invest your way to losing money. And that every single time, it's because I invested my way into losing money. Now, my rule is no more than 1% of my net worth in any investment. I don't like to invest in stocks, but I invest in private companies. So hypothetically, you could have really good size returns or you could lose everything. But if I only invested 1% of my net worth, I'm not losing sleep over it because all right, my net worth just went down 1%. No big deal. I'll make it back somewhere else. And you have multiple blah, blah, blah streams of income. But if an investment goes up, 100x, which is possible on private investments, you just doubled your net worth. And if you have 10 of those investments where you have some odds of going up 100x, but that means you have 90% of your net worth still in cash. So you're not worrying on any side and you've diversified the risk and you've done other things to reduce risk. That's that. And that's a whole thing. Give us some of the, the highlight reels of how you lose these millions. There was one company called Go America. You can communicate via mobile devices. You could text each other through mobile devices. And it was 2000, 2001. And it was intended for deaf people because there wasn't really like a lot of texting going on then. There was BlackBerry, but it wasn't good. Anyway, this was like basically Blackberries for deaf people. And so I invested in this and it was going public. And I figured, oh, I'm going to get in before the IPO. So I got in and then at the IPO, it looked like it was going down. And I figured, no, no, internet IPOs always go up. So I like literally 50X down on it. And I ended up having $2 million in this stock that never once ticked up. It IPO'd at 20 and it closed at 19. I figured that's stupid. I'm going to put 2 million into this. And then it went straight to one and then probably zero. What have you invested in the past six to 12 months? I don't think I've invested in anything in the past six to 12 months. Like the money's just in the checking account? Yeah, I keep my money in a checking account. 
you know, a really good investment doesn't come along that much. So I have like maybe a dozen investments out there. I've been investing privately since 2007. And, you know, with private investments too, the frustrating thing is the better the company is, the longer away you are from an exit. You learn what the bad companies are really fast because they just go out of business within six to 12 months. And by the way, as soon as the business calls me to ask for advice, I never call them again because if they're asking me for advice, that's the end of that business. And like, I'm the last person they call and I was the wrong person for them to call. Usually, you know, five years is a good holding period. Like I like to get out of five years, but I have some investments that I've been in for 11 years now because they keep doing well. Like, and their whole point is we keep doubling our revenues each year. So why would we go public and go up with the stock market, you know, 7% a year when we could just keep doubling our valuation or more every year by growing? And so I'm just sitting here for, in some cases for 11 years. I think my last investment was probably maybe like eight or nine months ago. There's a company called Stendra. Well, it's the only erectile dysfunction drug not off patent yet. So Viagra and Cialis are off patent and generics are sold. And Stendra is a like next generation ED drug and still on patent. So they have to license it if people want to use it? They sell it. Doctors, I guess, could prescribe it. And they're about to go public, actually. So I should put all in? No. I actually do try to tell them how they should. I think they should advertise more on podcasts because I look at like, Blue Chew, which is a generic Viagra, Blue Chew came out of nowhere and is like a billion dollar brand now. And all they did was advertise on podcasts. So I'm trying to tell these guys, well, I don't know. I don't know if they're in a quiet period or not. I don't, I don't know anything about them. This is awesome to hear these stories. The crypto stuff you were doing with Stansberry selling products. I don't know. I guess that's where I started actually listening to you less because I was just like, I don't understand this stuff. I don't know why he's pitching it. I guess you're making a lot of money. What's the story on that? I had this idea in mid 2017. I had a different outlook on or a different way of describing Bitcoin and crypto than anybody else out there. So I was kind of taking lessons from history and from biology and applying them to how I understood Bitcoin. Because I think the big problem crypto was having is that the average person in, let's say, the Midwest had no clue what it was, how to get it, why they should get it, what the reasoning for it was, you know, what was happening in the world that made Bitcoin a thing. So these guys from Agora, not Stansbury, but Agora, which is this big marketing firm, they were listening to me talk about it and they're like, oh, why don't we make a course about this or a newsletter about this? And I'm like, sure. And I thought, and I just still think that this is a good way to explain to people so they, they can understand. Bitcoin was around 3,000 then. I don't know what's that at today, but maybe 14,000 or 13,000. And I, went, I remember I went on CNBC in September, 2017. Bitcoin was about 3,500, 3,600. I said, yeah, this is why I think Bitcoin's eventually going to make it to a, a million because there's $150 trillion in money in the world and there's only $200 billion worth of Bitcoin in the world. And if you think Bitcoin has a chance of replacing money, then that's how far it, it could go to 10 million. 1 million is almost conservative in that way. And so I say this on CNBC. Again, Bitcoin was around 3,500, 3,600. It's done well since then. It's a, again, it's up 4X since then. But a lot of people started to hate me on this because A, it didn't go to a million instantly. It went up and it went down, it went up and it went down. And B, everyone's like, hey, we're software guys. We know Bitcoin. Who's this guy talking about Bitcoin? He doesn't live in San Francisco. Like, how dare he talk about Bitcoin? And that was really most of the people who were angry at me about Bitcoin were people who should have been happy that I was, you know, spreading the word in a way that people could 
understand. And yeah, I made money off a course and newsletters about it. And I had a lot of people helping me with that. It was a whole business. I mean, it is a whole business. I don't do as much crypto anymore. I do other stuff, but that's a business that I built up. I sold the business and I'm still involved with all the content of it, but I'm not really as involved in the, in the marketing of it or anything like that. How do you make money today? A lot of it's just from private investments. So every now and then a new, sometimes a small deal comes through and that's like some money. And then sometimes every few years, a big deal comes through and that's decent money. And I also write books and make good money that way. And I still make money from my newsletter business. I get kind of a trail on on their profits every year. And I'm trying to think, I was just thinking about it today. I've had three different hits. None of them were investment related. Oh, I had one crypto thing kind of get unsealed. And then I had a book advance. And I had one company that partially bought out a, some shares I had in it. I don't know, I get money all over the place. I have uh, the multiple streams of income thing. But now though, I'm uh, for the first time in like, Ever, I'm actually excited about entrepreneurship right now. So you know how we're doing this podcast on Skype? Yeah. And Skype's like the original video conference software. It's really the worst software out there. It's the VCR of software. Yeah, because it's you're only recording on your side. So if my internet goes bad, you're gonna get like kind of what's Skypey audio quality. It's Skypey video and you know, like pixelated and all that stuff. There are things better, like Zoom is better and for podcasts, there's something called Squadcast, which is perfect audio. It records audio on both sides, but has no video. And Zoom is video and audio, but it's low quality for both. So I am creating software right now that's above and beyond the best software for podcasting, for audio, for video. There's all sorts of functionality. So you can have like Instagram live style audiences that can interact on your podcast as well. We're going to also combine it with StreamYard kind of capabilities of live streaming the show to multiple platforms. And then we're adding some other stuff that's going to be like unbelievable. So we're hopefully going to release that very soon. That's what you said last time we talked. It's always very soon in the software world. It is always very soon because I, I keep thinking of more features I want to add, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Like I'm always interested in things that allow me to write, perform, you know, say things that I think are relevant or important. So like my podcast or again, writing or the different social media, like we talked last time about YouTube. As many years as I've been in all these things, I'm still trying to figure it all out. Like for instance, recently I had this article that I swear to God, at least from my calculations, I think about 30 million people around the world read this article, but I didn't really notice any change in, I already have decent amount of followers on different platforms and I have a good a listener base on my podcast, but I didn't really see any uptick, which surprised me. I was all over the media with this article, you know, millions read it. I was surprised, like what's changing in the world that usually something like that would drive my numbers up in, in various ways. And it didn't happen. What business feedback do you need that you were originally interested in in our last five minutes? Like I would talk about everything but that. What stuff were you, you know, curious about or wanted to at least just you talk through and or maybe get some feedback on? Well, that was one thing I was curious about was why virality didn't seem as important anymore. But the other thing is I'm going to launch this podcast software and, you know, I'm a good podcaster. You're a good podcaster. We have our audiences, people in the, we've been in the podcast industry for a long time. So people know who we are. So I'm hoping what, just by me saying, Hey, this is software I made and I think it's good. And, but then for my next book, I'm also trying to think of is my next book's coming out February 23rd. 
It's called Skip the Line. You can already pre-order on Amazon. Try to think of like good marketing gimmicks for that. These are my main two business things on my mind. And what's your current plan for both of those? So with Xcaster, it's the name of the podcast software. On Xcast, just like Xhamster? Like X-C-A-S-T-R. That's just like the porn site. Maybe that'll help me. Uh, I should make sure I could, there's live streaming from Xcaster to Xhamster. I think I'm just going to release that and say, look, I know podcasts inside and out. And I'll go on every podcast group that I'm in. And I'm like, try it and tell me what you think. And it's going to be the best. So I'm just assuming that that will work. The combination of authority, which is me, and then some social proof, which is all the other podcasters who initially use it. And assuming I tested enough to make sure nothing bad happens, that's my marketing plan there. With my book, I don't know. Like with Choose Yourself, I had you know really elaborate marketing things that I was doing. And I haven't quite been thinking of it in the same way this time. You kind of need marketing. I don't want to say tricks or gimmicks, but you have to do something outside of the context of the book. Maybe that expresses the principles of the book. You can't just say, my book's great. You kind of have to do something that is great and say, I did this because of the ideas I talk about in my book. So, you know, like for instance, a classic example is our good friend Tucker when he put out the book, Assholes Finish First. And what he did was he offered half a million dollars to Planned Parenthood to rename a facility the Tucker Max Planned Parenthood facility. And that was like a brilliant marketing angle. It made the news. The book sold millions of copies. And then Planned Parenthood turned them down, of course. And so you didn't have to spend the half a million. So it was brilliant in every possible way. So Tucker and Ryan Holiday kind of developed that marketing plan together. That was like one of among like two or three things that he did. What was the big things for Choose Yourself to make sales? I created a Bitcoin-only store to sell books. And it only had one book in the store. And I pre-released my book on a store that would only accept Bitcoin. This was in May, 2013. Bitcoin was $60 a, a coin. And I sold some, but it was it got enough attention that CNBC had me on to explain Bitcoin and to talk about this store. And they said, uh, did you just do this as a marketing gimmick? And I said, well, here I am right now on national TV. So if I did, it worked. And you know, that was one thing I did. Another thing I did was I started uh, running for Congress in my district at the time. And I ended up not running. But the reason I was not running became a story. And that got me on various radio shows. And, you know, that sold the book. And then I also, for anybody who didn't like the book, I told them if they could prove to me that they read it, I would give them the money back. And what's the main way you could prove you read a book? You write a review. So that was a good not gimmick, because I ended up giving a lot of money back, but... Uh, huh, how much money did you give back? I offered this for the first two months. I sold about 60,000 copies, and I gave it back about enough for 600 copies. So, like, you know, about 1%. That's not bad. No. Well, I guess the two things that with the podcast software, one, you should probably do something with the porn site. But two, do, why, have you lined up other podcasters to use it? No, because I want to finish it first before I apply business strategy on it. I just like to get it done so that there's no, like I'm not, like people have even offered to invest and all these things and that, and, or do deals. And I'm like, just focused on finishing it. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that's not my advice. Our advice would be go get the people to buy in and get the customers before. Cause what, that's what everyone does. It's like, Hey, it's going to come and launch soon. It's launching soon. And they launch and then you're fortunate, not fortunate. You've created an audience to promote that to versus you should probably try to get in a few of your influencer podcaster friends to buy into using it. Yeah, maybe I will. Okay, I'll do that. Hey, do you guys want to use it? You're using this shitty Skype thing. Uh, see, that's good. Yeah, we'll test it out.
All right, cool. All right, so that's one. I would try to line up. Who else do you know that you can go do? Well, I'll go into like, you know, again, the various like podcast Facebook groups with thousands of podcasters. I'll go into a couple of those and, you know, one of those like sign up for our waiting list type of things and get people to sign up for an email list about it. I think that's a good start. And then I'd say the the thing with the book is like, what's the gimmick that you can use this time? Sounds like that's something you got excited about and it's worked for you in the past. Yeah, I, I was thinking of breaking the world record for longest podcast. So it's something like 52 hours, something like that. There isn't a category for it. It's more like a straight continuous radio show. And then I was thinking, you know, no one has filed to run for president of the United States in 2024 yet. I was thinking of filing to run for president. I think that'd be funny. I think both those are good. That's a funny one because the book's called Skip the Line. So I'm basically saying I don't, the whole idea is everyone says when you try to do something, you can't build a rocket to Mars. You didn't major in physics. You didn't get a PhD in physics. You don't know how to build a rocket. And Elon Musk skipped that line, skipped all the people who told him you can't do this and is going to is building a rocket to Mars. Richard Branson, people told him he was 27 year old music magazine publisher. You can't start your own airline. You're a 27 year old dirtbag who runs a music magazine. And literally, he borrowed a Boeing 747, got Heathrow to give him a landing strip, got JFK to give him a landing strip. And he started an airline, started Virgin Airlines. So there's all sorts of techniques for skipping the line and all sorts of ways. I've switched career like five times. So just filing to run for president is totally skipping the line. You can't do that. I just did it. I dig it. All right. Well, we will let people know to go check out the book, Skip the Line. It's good to see you in the crazy hair. Yeah. Thanks for having me on your podcast. You got to come back on mine. It was always, you're always a huge hit on the podcast. All right, buddy. Thanks, man. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did. If you did, go check out James at James Altucher Podcast. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's paint watercolors together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. And don't forget, you probably already subscribed to this, so you can ignore this part, but youtube.com slash okdork. We put out two to three juicy business videos every single week for people just like you. Uh, and finally, a special shout out to my amazing team, Jason at podcasttech.com for doing all these episodes, David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen for all the magic they do for reals. And finally, a shout out to Jarrett Flieger. How do you say your last name, Jarrett? Who is amazing at AppSumo. He's been with us for a long time. It's cool to see your journey. It's cool to see your family grow, uh, making roots in Austin. Welcome to West California, East California. You know what I'm saying. Have a clear day. What's your favorite brand of water?